Her brother Chuck went over to call Alicia so that she could come downstairs to get some dessert, but she didn't answer. Now, this was a little bit weird to him, so he decided to go upstairs to check inside Alicia's bedroom, and when he walked inside the bedroom, she was gone. Hey everyone, welcome back to What Happened with Jackie Flores. I'm Jackie and I hope you're all doing super, super well. So welcome to today's episode. Today we're gonna be talking about a very frightening case. Any case that involves a child being groomed online and lured away from their home is really difficult to talk about. It's upsetting, it's frightening, but at the same time, it's also very important to share these type of cases because people need to be aware of the dangers of being online. Parents need to talk to their kids about these things. So as difficult and as distressing disturbing as these cases are to talk about, I definitely want to use my platform to spread awareness on internet safety. Today, we're going to be talking about what happened to 13-year-old Alicia Kozakaiwicz. Now, trigger warning, we're going to be talking about sexual assault and violence and also abuse. So with that, let's jump right in and let's talk about what happened to Alicia. Alicia was born on March 23, 1988 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to her mother Mary and to her father Charles. Now her family was like any other family. Mary was a stay-at-home mom and Charles worked long hours, but even then he still made time for his family. As for her siblings, she had an older brother named Chuck who was nine years older than her, so they had a pretty big age gap, but they were still very close to each other. Now Alicia was a beautiful, well-mannered, and well-behaved girl. She loved being at home with her family and she also excelled in school. She dabbled in poetry and she would frequently make the honor roll. Now growing up, Alicia said that she wanted to be a model, so she would take lots of photos of herself and then she would post them on the internet. Now keep in mind that this all took place in 2002, so the internet wasn't really a thing. Instagram didn't exist, Facebook wasn't a thing, Snapchat wasn't invented yet, so there really weren't all of these social media platforms where people could hang out online. However, there were chat rooms and other places that you could make profiles and upload photos to. While Alicia Alicia was only 13 years old and her brother Chuck, who was nine years older than her, you know, would frequently use the internet. And he was the one that actually showed Alicia how to use a computer. And then he also showed her how to play all of these games and just kind of like showed her how to be online. Now, Alicia wasn't the only person in her class that was on the internet at the time. A ton of her classmates were also in these chat rooms talking to each other. And she said that it was really cool because like the popular kids would talk to like the non-popular kids on the internet. So she just felt like it was easier for everyone to put their differences from real life aside and come together online to be friends. So even though Alicia was 13 years old, she was a little bit naive. She kind of thought that life was like a Disney movie, so like singing to animals type of thing, and she was also really afraid of the dark. Now, she could be a little bit shy in person, so she just found it easier for herself to be chatting with people on the internet rather than in person. Now, in these chat rooms, everyone was talking, like I said, to their classmates, to people outside of their normal friend groups, and then they would also introduce their outside-of-school friends into these chat rooms, and then other people would become friends with them, which I feel like we can all relate to. You know, like when you're young, it's just way easier to make friends on the internet, and if it's a friend of a friend, you can just add them on Facebook or you know, something like that and connect with them rather than doing it in person. I remember I used to do that all the time on Facebook, like a friend of a friend would add me and I would just add them back like with not even thinking twice about it. I didn't even know this person in real life, but because they were friends with my friend, I felt like it was okay to have them on my Facebook. 
So Alicia was having a great time on the internet and the computer that she was using was not a personal computer. It was actually a family computer. Now this computer was in the living room. It wasn't in her bedroom so that she could use it like secretly or privately. It was in the living room for everyone else to see what she was doing and this just made her parents feel like they were monitoring what she was doing online and that this was a safer option. Which I agree. I think family computers are a great option when you have young kids and teenagers using the internet. That way if they want to do something on the computer they're gonna have to do it in front of everybody so yeah alicia would spend a lot of her time on the computer making friends and because of this her confidence was growing but then she started to spend a little bit too much time on the internet at one point she even described herself as an internet addict it was just a whole different world i mean she was speaking to all these people online making friends with everyone so of course she wanted to spend her time on the internet because it was just easier and like I said, I feel like we can all relate to that. You know, sometimes you just get consumed by the internet and you just forget about reality. So now let's fast forward to January 1st, 2002. It was New Year's Day and Alicia was at her house with her family. Her family would always go above and beyond for New Year's. They would have a big meal with all of their extended family and it was just a really joyful time. That day, Alicia's mom had made some pork and sauerkraut for dinner and everybody was just having a good time, you know, celebrating the new year. Towards the end of dinner, Alicia's mom, Mary, went to the kitchen to start making the dessert to serve to everybody else. And as Mary was doing this, Alicia approached her and told her that she had a tummy ache, that her stomach wasn't feeling well, and she actually asked her mom if she could go upstairs to her bedroom and just get some rest. Mary agreed to the plan, and she told Alicia that this would be okay, so after that, Alicia walked upstairs and went to her bedroom. Now, some time went by, and it was finally time for dessert. So her brother Chuck went over to call Alicia so that she could come downstairs to get some dessert, but she didn't answer. Now, this was a little bit weird to him, so he decided to go upstairs to check inside Alicia's bedroom, and when he walked inside the bedroom, she was gone. Chuck immediately came back downstairs and he told his parents that his sister was missing. Everyone started looking around the house for her and that's when they realized that the front door was wide open, which everyone thought was weird. I mean, why was the front door open in January? And also, how did no one notice that the door was open this entire time? Because obviously it's freezing cold in Pittsburgh at the time, so obviously a breeze was coming through. Everyone was just so confused as to what could have happened to her, but her parents didn't think that she ran away from home because first off she didn't take her winter coat with her and again it was january so it was freezing cold and for christmas they gave her 200 but the 200 was still at the house so if she was running away she probably would have taken her coat with her and her money but she didn't so because of those factors they immediately believed that someone must have taken her after looking for her all over the place the parents decided to call 911 and report alicia is missing Police arrived at the scene and luckily they handled the situation like a kidnapping from the beginning, which if you listen to a couple of episodes on this podcast, that's not something that always happens. Sometimes they do mark people as a runaway, but now they were fully focusing on the fact that Alicia was most likely kidnapped. Her photo was immediately placed everywhere, all over the news and all over the newspapers. The FBI was actually called into the scene because everyone was just freaking out at the fact that this 13-year-old girl just vanished from her home. Investigators started from the very beginning and they wanted to talk to everybody in Alicia's life just to see if maybe they knew what could have happened to her or who would have taken her. They spoke with her friends and her friends mentioned that Alicia had a lot of online friends. 
So, since Alicia spent a lot of her time on the internet, the FBI decided to search the family computer to try to figure out, you know, who she had been talking to over the internet and if that could lead to some clues about her current whereabouts. Investigators made a forensic image of Alicia's computer hard drive and they ran a program that analyzed the image. From her personal webpage, they found out that she called herself Goddess of All. And I feel like we all had really weird usernames when we were young, so I'm not sure why she put this name, but on her page, she had also listed her interests as mythology, hypnosis, and witchcraft. So the investigators try to find snippets of these words in the data, and that's when they made a very troubling discovery. They found out that Alicia had visited chat rooms dedicated to sadomasochism. And for those that don't know what sadomasochism is, it is the giving and receiving of pleasure from acts involving the receipt or infliction of pain or humiliation. Investigators also figured out that she had been talking to someone with the name DC Sadist. Now, when you're a kid, none of these words mean anything. Thing, I'm sure Alicia had no idea what this meant or didn't think that there were people in these chats that were serious about that kind of thing. Alicia just wanted to pursue her interests and find a community around them, but somehow she ended up on the horrible, horrible side of the internet. So after finding this person that she was chatting to, investigators tried to search the screen name DC Sadist, but nothing came up. And besides this username, police didn't really have much to go off of. Like I said, this was in 2002, so technology wasn't the greatest, the internet wasn't the greatest, so it was just really hard to track her down. It's not like they could have tracked her iPhone or they could have tracked her through her Apple Watch or something like that. All they had to go off of was the fact that Alicia spent time in this chat room and that she was talking to this person. Investigators were just feeling really stuck about this because there was no witnesses, no clues, nothing. However, that all changed on January 4th. That day, a tip came into the FBI from an anonymous phone call. This caller said that they were from Tampa, Florida, and he said that Alicia could still be alive and that she had at least been alive since she disappeared from her house. Now, of course, the FBI is like, okay, how does this person know this? Like, how do we know if this is actually a viable tip? Well, the caller said that he was watching a live stream of a girl being abused online and that the girl looked just like Alicia, which I'm just like, what? Like, the fact that this guy admitted to be watching a live stream of a girl getting abused is wild to me. It's so disturbing, and we'll get into him a little bit later, though, but that was the anonymous tip, and he also says that for the last nine months, he has been chatting with an online person named Scott, who was apparently from Virginia, and Scott had told this caller that he was traveling to Pittsburgh to pick up a girl, and like I mentioned, Alicia lived in Pittsburgh. Scott told the guy that he was going to bring the girl back to his house and then make her a sex slave. He eventually messaged the caller saying, quote, I got one. And then to that message, he attached a disturbing photo, which was a screenshot of Alicia from a live stream that Scott was hosting. It's all just truly disturbing. The fact that this anonymous caller was talking to this Scott guy and Scott was openly telling him how he was going to go get a girl and make her a sex slave and everyone was just so casual about this is so frightening. After this, Scott sent even more pictures of Alicia bound above her head being beaten and of her crying. Now, when the caller received these photos and these messages, he thought that this was fake. I mean, for all he knew, these could have been someone else's photos or maybe this was staged or something like that. He just truly didn't believe that this guy had taken a girl and abducted her. However, one day this guy came across a poster from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and the girl on this poster was Alicia. He started reading the flyer and that's when he saw that Alicia was from Pittsburgh, that she was 13 years old and just the timeline of when she went missing and when Scott sent the message saying that he got a girl, the caller just immediately knew that Scott 
Scott had taken Alicia. That's when he decided to call the FBI and turn over Scott. He gave up Scott's screen name, which was Master for Teen Slave Girls, which is disgusting. Now, this was pretty big. The FBI and the investigators were like, okay, this is like a really big tip and this seems to be viable. So they started looking into the screen name, but once again, they couldn't find anything. So then they tried searching variations of the name and within minutes, one of the investigators found a Yahoo chat profile of a suspect using the handle Master for Teen underscore Slave Girls. In his profile, this man listed other online aliases, including DC Sadist, which is the same username as a person that Alicia was speaking to in her chat room. This is when investigators realized that they had found their guy. Now let's take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors today at HelloFresh. I've been loving hosting at my place, and you can also make your home the hangout place this summer with everyone's favorites from Backyard Bratwurst Bar to Tangy Key Lime Pie. HelloFresh Market makes summer entertaining so easy. HelloFresh really wants you to have it all. They want you to have free time for yourself, and they also want you to have fresh and tasty food. That's why they handle all of the meal planning and deliver the ingredients so everything you need to whip up a delicious meal arrives right to your door. I have a HelloFresh subscription myself and I love making meals with my fiance. It's kind of like our date night. We'll decide on a meal, we'll put a movie on in the background and then we'll start making this dish and it's just like a really good hangout thing for us to do. So it's really fun to do with your boyfriend, your partner, your friends or your family. On top of that, it also saves me a lot of time and I'm able to make quick, delicious and filling meals for my friends when they come over. So what are you waiting for. Go to HelloFresh.com slash WhatHappen50 and use code WhatHappen50 for 50% off plus free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash WhatHappen50 and use code WhatHappen50 for 50% off plus free shipping. And enjoy America's number one meal kit. So you might be wondering about the caller and how he came to even be associated with Scott. I mean, he himself was a bad guy who was also browsing these websites looking for child porn, but he decided that he had to turn this person in who took Alicia for actually selfish reasons, which I will get into a little bit later. Okay, so now the FBI had this guy's first name and his usernames. Now it was time to find him and track him down. The FBI actually reached out to the vice president of Yahoo in California, and they asked for the company's help in tracing down the IP address associated with the screen name, citing section 212 of the Patriot Act. Now, Section 212 of the USA Patriot Act allows electronic communication service providers to disclose either customer records or the content of customer communication to a government entity in any emergency situation that involves an immediate danger of death or serious physical injury. Yahoo reps fax the FBI the IP address, and it turns out that Verizon was an internet provider for that IP address. So then the FBI got in touch with Verizon representatives, and after 30 minutes, they had the name and address of the man registered to the account. And that man was 38-year-old Scott William Tyree, a man from Herndon, Virginia. His house was about a four to five hour drive from Alicia's home. So that same day on January 4th, the FBI reached out to their field office in Washington, D.C., and they dispatched a team to Scott's house. By this time, Alicia had been missing for three days. The FBI showed up to the Herndon home at 4.10 p.m. and they knocked on the door. But there was no answer. However, they weren't just going to wait around for someone to open the door. They actually decided to break down the door. Now, I'm not sure if they had a warrant, but in situations like this, you actually don't need a warrant. If law enforcement believes that a crime is being committed inside of the residence, they're allowed to enter. A warrant is only needed for collecting evidence that is going to be used in court. So typically warrants are needed after a crime takes place or if a person tied to a crime might have evidence stored at their house. So the FBI was able to enter the home and they started searching for Alicia. 
There was a cat who lived there that kept following the officers around, and the house was just kind of eerie. The FBI got down to the basement, but there was still no sign of Alicia. They couldn't hear anything, so they figured that the room was cleared. They were all about to leave when all of a sudden, they heard some movement. At first, one of the agents thought that maybe it was just a cat moving around, but as the agent got closer, he realized that the movement was coming from a person. He told this person to come out with their hands up. The person started walking towards them, and that's when the agent saw that this was 13-year-old Alicia. She was fully naked, coming out from underneath a bed, terrified, and trying to cover herself with a chain that she had around her neck. Now, this chain was just long enough so that she could go and use the bathroom. They immediately covered her body with a jacket, and they cut the chain off her neck. Then, a female FBI agent escorted her out of the kidnapper's home. I mean, this was truly a miracle. Everyone was so happy that Alicia was found and that she was found alive. But where was Scott, the man they assumed kidnapped her? Alicia told them that the kidnapper was coming home at 4.30 p.m., that he went to work, and that he told Alicia that he'd be taking her on a drive today because he was starting to like her too much, which she believed meant that he was going to murder her. Alicia had literally just escaped death by 20 minutes. After being saved, Alicia first went to the hospital to get checked out. Her parents tried to get on a plane so that they could bring her home, but the media frenzy stopped them from immediately being able to do that. You know, her disappearance was such a big deal in the media and then her being found alive just created a lot of attention. The next day, the FBI allowed her parents to use their private plane so that they could get to Virginia. Alicia ran into her parents' arms when they arrived and this just seemed like a miracle to everyone. You know, in the photos of Alicia leaving the hospital with her parents, she has the biggest smile on her face and she's wearing an FBI hat and you can just tell that she's so happy to be reunited with her parents and back home and safe. When Alicia and her parents arrived home, they saw that their neighbors had decorated the outside area around their house with ribbons to welcome her home. Like, wow, I know I said this already, but it's truly a miracle and it's crazy how fast the police worked for this, which is amazing. Like, I wish every case had this same type of timeline and that they could all be solved so quickly and that they all had a positive ending. Now, let's go back to what happened immediately after Alicia was saved. FBI agents went to Scott, the kidnapper's work, which was at the Computer Associated Technologies International, and when they arrived at the building, Scott wasn't at his cubicle. Now, since this was all happening so fast, the FBI agents only knew the kidnapper's name. They didn't even have a photo of him, so they had no idea what this guy looked like. You know, they had followed the tip, tracked down the IP, and got an address and the name, but... They didn't have time to get any pictures of him, so they just walked into this office kind of blinded. The FBI agent in charge didn't know what to do at first when Scott wasn't at his desk, but he remembered from his training to just take a second and take a step back and look around because a lot of the times you can find your answer when you just take a moment or a pause. So he did just that. He took a second and he looked around. That's when he saw a man down a row of cubicles who was looking at the FBI agents when no one else was. And he could just tell by the look on his face that that was like fear rather than curiosity. And that's when the agent just knew that that man was Scott. So he sent some FBI agents down to talk to him and Scott didn't make a run for it and he admitted that he was Scott Tyree. They arrested him just 30 minutes after Alicia had been saved and they brought him down to the police station. They 
explained to him that they were just at his house and that they had just saved Alicia. They interrogated him for the next eight hours and he remained calm and polite the entire time. It's always just so eerie to me when people can act that way. I mean, especially after you just got caught for such a horrible and disturbing thing, but yet you're acting all calm and collected as if you didn't just do something so bad. Now, before we get into the trial and the aftermath of this case, let's talk about how this even happened. You know, how did Alicia meet Scott? How did he abduct her? And what was her perspective throughout those four days? Well, as we know, Alicia had met Scott on the internet in a chat room, but he didn't admit that he was a full-grown man. He lied, and he said that he was a 13-year-old boy. Alicia and Scott started to chat regularly, and they actually became pretty close. They would talk to each other on a regular basis, and this went on for six months. Six months of online chatting, you know, sharing details about their life, their day-to-day -day activities, and just everything. Alicia would confide in Scott about certain things going on in her life, and then he would give her advice on what to do. Now, Alicia explained that chatting with a stranger online is totally different than meeting a stranger in the real world, because online you can get to know them and start to become friends quicker and easier. She hadn't even considered the fact that this guy could be lying about his age, you know, about who he is or anything, because at the time, catfishing wasn't a thing. The term catfish wasn't even known to people, so she never suspected that this guy could be lying. And like I mentioned, all of her friends would use the internet. They would all talk in these chat rooms and they would all make friends with random people. So she thought that this was okay. So her and Scott would talk all the time and she would even chat with him after her parents went to sleep. Scott would compliment her and he would always be on her side and that's how he groomed her. If she got a bad grade in school, if she got into a fight with her friends or with her mom, Scott would be there for her and he would remind her that these people were bad and that he's a good friend to her because he's never insulted her, he's never fought with her, nothing. Now that's just one example of how grooming starts. They want to make it seem like everyone else is a bad guy but that they're the good person and that they're the only true friend that you need. They pretty much try to brainwash you. Alicia says that the fact that she was scared of the dark and that she didn't like the cold but that night she was willing to go out in the dark and into the cold for this person shows how groomed she was and how brainwashed she was. Going into the dark and out into the cold was so out of character for her but this guy just brainwashed her so much that he convinced Alicia to do this for him. So that night like I mentioned earlier on New Year's Day Alicia told her mom that she had a tummy ache and that she wanted to go to her bedroom. Well, instead of actually going to her room, Alicia walked out the front door. And the reason that she left the front door open is because she truly believed that she wasn't going to be gone for long. You know, she thought she was stepping out just to say hi to her friend Scott, who she had met online quickly, and then she would be back inside. I mean, that's why she didn't even take her winter coat with her, because this was supposed to be a quick trip. Now, while Alicia was outside, she got this gut feeling that she shouldn't be doing this. She was standing behind a tree, and that's when she kind of got her senses back. You know, where she realized, okay, this is probably not a good idea. She honestly considered going back inside the house, but as she was thinking about this, she heard someone calling out her name. But the person she thought she was meeting, who was supposed to be a 13-year-old boy, wasn't there. Instead, this person was an adult man. Yes, an adult man who had been speaking to Alicia for the past six months, pretending to be a teenage boy. The next thing she remembers is getting inside this man's car and driving away. He squeezed Alicia's hand so tight that she for sure thought that he must have broken her hand. He told Alicia that she needed to be quiet and behave or he would put her in the car's trunk. Alicia turned around and to look at the back of the car and that's when she saw that there was a bunch of rope 
chains, and just miscellaneous items that were very frightening to her. After seeing those items, she reacted how anyone would by complying in hopes that she wouldn't be harmed. Alicia tried to memorize street signs of where they were, thinking that they might just be going a neighborhood over or maybe the other side of town or something. But as they continued to drive, Alicia didn't recognize where they were anymore. At the time, she didn't know that she was being driven outside of state lines. They actually came up to a toll booth, and Alicia thought that this was a moment that she was going to be saved. You know, she was sitting in the car crying, so she thought that the toll booth worker would stop them. You know, this was a 13-year-old girl and an adult man, and her crying should have raised some red flags but the toll booth worker just took the money and waved them along. After about five hours of driving, they arrived at a house and Alicia was brought inside. They walked down into the basement to a door with a padlock on it. Now Scott unlocks the padlock, they walk through the door, and he basically pushes Alicia inside. And this room was just pitch black. Now again, Alicia is scared of the dark and she often wonders if Scott knew this and he was messing with her mind by making this room be pitch black. Scott then told Alicia, quote, this is going to be really hard for you. It's okay. Cry. Which is just so disturbing and frightening. The fact that he warned her and told her to cry, it just breaks my heart for her. Now, inside of the room looked like a torture chamber, and it literally was one. There was a large dog cage on the ground, pet bowls that she would have to drink water out of, and on the wall there were whips and chains and just other things like that. I just can't imagine the horror that Alicia must have felt in that moment, you know, walking into this room and just seeing all of that. Scott put a dog collar with a lock on it around Alicia's neck that was connected by a chain to the floor. And then he raped Alicia. For the next several days, Alicia was physically abused and raped multiple times. Now, Alicia tried to fight back, but her kidnapper broke her nose when she did. He was just so much stronger than her. I mean, Alicia only weighed 90 pounds and he was a fully grown adult man. She quickly realized that she had to do whatever she could to survive and that's when she stopped resisting. Now, if you guys listen to my episode on Elizabeth Smart, it's a few episodes down if you guys want to go check it out after this, but she is also a survivor of an abduction and something that she often talks about to this day is that people would blame her for complying with her abductor and they made it seem like she wanted this and she wouldn't fight back or really try to escape from her captor. And she says that that's not the case. Elizabeth talks about how there's such a thing as unwilling consent. You're not complying, you're not staying quiet because you want to. You're doing it because there's no other option and that's the only thing that you can think of to do in order to survive and that's what Alicia did. So Alicia's kidnapper Scott also tortured her. He would hang her by the arms and then he would beat her. He attached clamps to her and he electrocuted her. He also took photos of Alicia and shared them with his friends online. That is just so horrific and what's even worse is that more people than just the caller that gave in the tip saw these images and didn't do anything to help her. Alicia realized that she needed to do something to humanize herself to her kidnapper. She didn't know where she got this idea from, but at this point, it was her only hope. And then on January 4th, in the morning, Scott told Alicia, I'm beginning to like you too much. Tonight, we're going for a drive. He then gave Alicia food for the first time in four days, four whole days, a stale piece of chicken left over from a fast food meal that he was having. Now she thought that this was gonna be her last meal ever. The kidnapper left saying that he was gonna go to work and then he would be back at 4.30 p.m. 
Like I mentioned earlier, Alicia believed that he was going to kill her. She still didn't scream after he left just in case this was like a trap. You know, some type of mind game saying, oh yeah, I'm going to go to work. And then Alicia would ask for help and he would come back in and kill her for trying to escape. Alicia said that she started to kind of just drift off. You know, she wasn't falling asleep. She just kind of felt numb at this point. I mean, again, she has been through so much abuse in the past four days. She barely had her first meal that morning. So she was kind of just dozing off in a way, but... Then all of a sudden, she was woken up by the sound of voices outside of the door. Now, these voices sounded a little bit angry. They sounded stressed, and all she could hear was that they were saying something about a gun. At the time, she didn't know that it was the FBI. She was just so scared. I mean, imagine going through something so horrific for four days, and then you hear someone outside of your door. You wouldn't think it was the FBI. You would think it was your abductor playing mind games on you, or maybe someone that your abductor hired to kill you. So she didn't say anything, but then she heard the agent say, all clear, signaling, all right, there's no one here, let's move on. So she thinks that maybe she just made a little bit of noise because then one of the agents shouted, movement over there. Alicia says that she remembers dragging the cold and heavy chain out and that she was trying to put her hands up in the air, but at the same time, she was also trying to cover herself because she was wearing no clothes and that she just walked out to a group of men holding guns. It was a very scary moment for her, but then she realized that it was the FBI and that she was safe now. She truly felt that it was a miracle that she was found. And I mean, I was able to summarize that in just a few minutes, but remember, she lived through all of this and even more during those four days. And what's upsetting is that some people feel like just because it was four days, she wasn't really abused, which I don't know, is that's a crazy and such a terrible thing to say. I don't get what's wrong with some people. Some people just have no empathy. And we'll get into the public opinion a little bit later, but yes, that's Alicia's perspective of what happened to her. Now, in regards to the man that reported Scott to the police, Alicia doesn't really find him to be a hero because this man was willingly watching her live stream and that's disturbing in itself and just shows his character that he wanted to watch a live stream of a young underage girl getting abused and tortured. The only reason he called the police is because he thought, well, if Alicia dies, then I'm going to be connected to this and I might go to jail myself. So to save himself, he called the police and turned over Scott. Now, she just finds it interesting how this kind of played out, you know, how a bad person was trying to do a good thing in a bad situation to save themselves, but in the end, saved Alicia. I tried looking into this guy and I couldn't find out if he actually went to jail too or what happened to him, but hopefully he got help or at least helped to put other people away. Also, after Scott's arrest, it was discovered that he had been married two times before that and that he had a 12-year-old daughter. He had a daughter, you guys, and this daughter stayed with him over winter break. So just one day after his daughter went back to her mother's house, he kidnapped Alicia. And that's just so crazy to me. I mean, they were only one year apart in age. So imagine being the daughter and having to find this out that your dad literally abducted someone that was just one year older than you. Now, both of Scott's ex-wives were completely shocked by his arrest. And, you know, they never suspected him of being a rapist, a kidnapper, and almost a murderer. So now that we know the family's perspective, law enforcement's perspective, and Alicia's perspective as to what happened, let's talk about the trial and the aftermath once Alicia was saved and her kidnapper was arrested. Now, Scott had first pleaded not guilty to enticing a minor to engage in sexual activity, travel with the intent to engage in a sexual act with the minor, transportation with intent to engage in criminal sexual activity, and sexual exploitation of a minor, and he was looking to face 65 years if he was found guilty by a jury. So just 
just to be clear, he wasn't charged with kidnapping or rape. And just in case everyone doesn't know, travel with intent to engage in a sexual act with a minor is a charge for when someone brings, let's say, a 14-year-old to a state or country where the age of consent is 14. So it's really crazy, I mean, that those were his original charges. I don't get why he was not charged with kidnapping. She was literally chained to the floor and taken, so I don't really understand that. However, in the end, there was no trial because in September of 2003, Scott Tyree took a plea deal and he pleaded guilty to travel with intent to engage in sex with a minor and sexual exploitation of a minor in exchange for 19 years and seven months in federal prison with three years of supervised release after. Now, this actually wasn't a normal deal that lawyers would make because he wasn't actually charged for any forced sexual assault or kidnapping. Now, if you remember in Elizabeth Smart's case, her lawyers wouldn't make a plea deal because they didn't want the charge of rape to be removed. But I guess maybe because this was never a charge, Alicia's lawyers were more willing to do a plea deal. And doing a plea deal meant that there was no trial, so Alicia didn't have to be questioned on the stand, saving her from further trauma. According to some of Scott's friends, including the person who gave the tip, he actually bragged about how he abducted Alicia and how he was holding her captive in his basement. So obviously this guy has no type of remorse and he was just a truly evil monster. The fact that he was bragging about this to his friends and was posting it online is so disturbing. Like my brain can't even comprehend this and how people can be so evil and also how calculated he was. I mean, he literally groomed Alicia for six months. Scott did appeal his conviction in 2004, but he was denied his appeal. After only serving 17 years in February of 2019, Scott was released from the Federal Correctional Complex in Butner and was assigned to live in a halfway house in Pittsburgh. Now, this was about two years before he was supposed to be released after serving his 19 years and seven months in prison. Now, the fact that he was assigned to live in a halfway house in Alicia's hometown is so disturbing. I mean, he didn't even live there before, and you'd think that they would do anything to move him further away from her. Alicia's family was so worried about this. I mean, this halfway house was only four miles away from Alicia's family home. Four miles away. Imagine that. The man that abducted your daughter and abused her and did such terrible things to her now lives only four miles from you. People protested against this placement and even members of Congress put pressure on the Federal Bureau of Prisons to get him housed somewhere far away from Alicia and her family. The controversy didn't matter after Scott violated the terms of his parole by visiting pornographic sites. He was sentenced back to prison in 2019 for two years and then he was released in September of 2021. So as of now, he is out and about and just living his life. Alicia says that there's not much that she can do about it and that her job right now is to focus on her life, focus on moving on and just protecting her peace, not being worried about what Scott is doing and what's going on in his life. And to me, it's just really scary that this guy is out there somewhere and I just truly hope that he never hurts anyone else again. As for Alicia, in addition to the abuse that she went through from Scott, she also had to deal with people belittling her story, claims of being groomed, and then blaming her and her parents for her kidnapping. They said that because Alicia was smiling after being reunited with her parents, that her abuse could have not been that bad. Now, going back to what I mentioned earlier about how people were judging and saying, oh, it was just four days of abuse, like, that's not that bad. That's crazy. Like, the fact that people said that and those words came out of people's mouths is truly disturbing and disappointing. Alicia 
just says that she had to deal with so much victim blaming and that they would blame her and they would also blame her parents. People actually started making rumors about her parents saying that they were alcoholics and they even accused Alicia's dad of abusing her. They basically believed any absurd theory rather than believing what actually happened, that a full-grown man groomed Alicia, abducted her, tortured her, and that he was the only person responsible for this. After everything that Alicia went through, she had to go through a period of counseling and healing. She actually saw some of the footage that Scott recorded of her. Obviously, this wasn't by choice. The FBI had to show her this footage just so she could confirm that this was actually her on camera, which I can't imagine how that was. I mean, Alicia is such a strong person. Everything that she has been through is something that we can't even imagine ever happening. This was just so traumatic for her. And instead of letting this experience define her, she chose to define it. And she began to share her story and motivational message through the Alicia Project, which she started at age 14. The mission of this project is to promote internet safety and child safety awareness education, advocate for missing and recovered persons, battle against child exploitations and human trafficking. If you guys want to learn more about her project and about everything that she's doing to help the community, you guys can go to www.aliciaproject.org. Alicia's case is also known as the first ever internet-related abduction. Now, she's gone to speak at schools about internet safety, and I was reading a comment from a 7th grade student who heard Alicia's speech at her school, and she said that as soon as she got home, she, like, removed all her photos from her social media, and she unfriended everybody on it, and just, like, deactivated her page because it really frightened her, and she just wants to be safer about what she's doing on the internet. Alicia has since earned a master's degree in forensic psychology from the Chicago School of Professional Psychology, and she is now a motivational speaker, an internet safety expert, a victim and missing persons advocate, and a TV personality who has inspired millions through her in-person and on-screen appearances. She's very passionate about speaking about what happened to her and just warning people that they need to be careful with what their children are doing on the internet. Before starting her own foundation, she was actually part of the International Center for Missing and Exploited Children, and she was a director of outreach and global impact, and she did a lot of amazing work there. She testified before Congress and she actually worked to pass Alicia's Law, which provides funding to the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force, enabling them to rescue endangered children. She was able to secure this law in all 50 states. If you go to the AliciaProject.org, there's a lot of helpful resources there and she has a specific page dedicated to internet safety tips. So I want to go through some of these tips that she provided on the website, but if you guys want to read more about it, I will link it under my YouTube video. I just think it's important to share these tips so if any parent is watching, any adult or even a teenager is watching, they can know about this and spread these safety warnings. One thing that she wants people to know is that any child or teen can become the victim of an internet predator. Predators don't discriminate based on gender, ethnicity, education, socioeconomic status, income, or religion. It can happen, it does happen, and it's happening now. So what can we do? You can teach your child or your teen to never share private or identifying information such as their name, their address, where they go to school, where they live, or anything personal with a person online that is not known or trusted in real life. So if you don't know this person in real life, this person has not met you or your family, do not share private information with them. If you share this type of stuff, even just by saying where you go to school, a predator can use that information to groom and even locate your child or your teenager. This person can 
can literally look up the school on Google Maps and from there just kind of zero in on the area where you could possibly live. I even follow this tip to this day. I don't really share anything about where I live or where I go or anything because it's just not something that you need to be sharing with people online. If I ever do post on my story, it's never in the moment. Sometimes it's hours later that I post on my story or sometimes even days later, like I've done that before where I go on vacation and I don't post about it until like weeks later. Now, another thing that you can do is that you can strengthen the privacy settings on all social networking sites and ensure that these settings remained unchanged after any updates. So if your child decides to make an Instagram account, make sure that it's private and that anybody that requests to follow your child's Instagram account gets vetted and that you know who this person is and that it's not just like a random person trying to look at your child's posts. The same goes for Facebook, Twitter, everything. Another thing that I've seen is to also disable geotagging on all mobile devices because this has the ability to automatically pinpoint and disclose your child or your teenager's location. I've done this for myself, so even though I'm an adult, I still recommend that everybody does this. You should also know your child or your teen's passwords as much as they're going to hate it, but knowing the passwords on all devices is very important. That way you can check in on what they're doing, make sure that they're not talking to anybody they shouldn't be talking to, and that nothing weird is going on. Your child might be upset about this, you know, about the fact that they have to give you their password, but that's why it's so important to maintain a loving, open, and respectful line of communication with them just to make sure that no one gets upset, no one gets angry, and that they understand that everything is coming from a loving point of you. You're not doing it because you're crazy and you're trying to control them. You're doing this because you love them and you want to protect them. There are so many other tips that I can give you guys, but like I said, if you want to read more about it, I will link her website under my YouTube video as well as other resources and websites that can provide sources for internet safety. If you feel that your child or your teen is being groomed, threatened, harassed, or exploited online, please immediately report this activity to your local law enforcement and you can also report them to the National Center for Missing and Exploited children cyber tip line on alicia's website you can make a donation in honor of the alicia project and it all goes towards helping her continue to be an advocate for victims everywhere so i went ahead and made a donation on behalf of us but if you guys would like to make your own donation i will leave her website linked underneath my youtube video this is a case that truly frightened me it just makes me worried if i ever have kids i just want to protect them and it's scary how the internet can be such a dangerous place and how it's so easily accessible to everybody now i'm so happy that this had a positive outcome and that alicia was found and was reunited with her family. Based on her Instagram page, it looks like she's living a wonderful life now. She looks happy, she's glowing, and that's just the best thing that could have ever happened. You know, the fact that she's happy now and has hopefully moved on from this and has healed is wonderful, and it's just beautiful to see her so happy and joyful. She is such an incredibly strong person, and the fact that she uses her story to help others and help other victims is wonderful, and she's really doing such great work. My thoughts and prayers go out to her family and to everyone in her life that had to live through this. This is a terrible thing and something that you hope will never happen to your loved one. But like Alicia says, these things do happen and they're happening now. At this moment, someone is being groomed online and it's just so important to check in on what your kids are doing and make sure that they're being safe on the internet. But all right, you guys, that's pretty much everything I have for today's episode. Thank you guys so much for being here and for taking the time to listen to what happened to Alicia. If there's ever any cases that you guys want me to cover, make sure to leave me a comment under my YouTube video. Don't forget to follow, rate, and review what happened wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to my channel, True Crime Jackie, on YouTube for for full video episodes. You can also find me on Instagram at the Jackie Flores and on TikTok at True Crime Jackie. All right, I'll see you guys in the next episode. Bye guys.